1: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigat. Thank you for joining us uh, for today's show. Very quickly, before I introduce the panel and we begin the discussion about the top political stories in the news today, I want to do a little bit of uh, backtracking uh, about the show we did yesterday when um, I talked with the best selling crime author, Karen Slaughter, whose new book is called False Witness. I heard from a number of you who said you were eager to read the book that you really enjoyed the conversation. I did too. It occurred to me after the show was over that maybe I should have p- mentioned one quick thing. If you are thinking about reading the book because you heard the show, but you're not a fan of fairly uh, uh, graphic violence, you might want to pass it <laughs> pass it, uh, up on it. Karen Slaughter is very good at describing kind of bone-crunching, blood-shattering Uh, episodes of violence, and this book certainly contains them. So just a little caution, um, although I still think the book is enormous fun. All right. Uh, Again, I I appreciated hearing from uh, so many of you about it. You can listen to the show on our podcast or at gpb.org slash PR if you missed it yesterday. Uh, Tamar Hellerman is joining us. It's Tuesday, the day that we have her, senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with us. Tamar, how are you?
0: Hey, I'm going to be skipping that, that true crime novel you just described. I am super squeamish, so that sounds like my nightmare. Yeah,
1: yeah. not true crime. It is a novel, so <laughs> thank goodness it's not true crime. Hey, tomorrow you uh, said right before the show went on, when we were talking, you've been kind of on the 96 Olympic beat fairly recently and have a couple of stories coming up uh, during this 25th anniversary year since the Atlanta Olympics.
0: Yeah, and I I don't want to get too ahead of myself on all of this, but something that Bill and I were talking about ahead of the show is today is a very um, noteworthy, sad anniversary. 25 years ago today, it was the ninth day of the Atlanta Olympics, and it's when a a bomb tore through Centennial Olympic Park and uh, killed a woman from Albany and spread terror throughout the city of Atlanta. So a very sad moment for the city.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Eric Rudolph, of course, eventually uh, arrested and tried for that crime. Richard Jewell, the security guard, was under uh, suspicion for a long time uh, before he was exonerated. Um, Amelia Brock, our senior producer, back in those days was working, or not in those days, but was working before coming to us on our show On Second Thought, and uh, she pointed out to me this morning that... um, they did a story about the real, a documentary about what they called the real uh, Richard Jewell. And they won a Public Media Journalist Association Award in 2020 for that. And I know Amelia is very proud of that. Um, we're also joined today by uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur. Mary Margaret, how's your summer going?
2: It's going great. Thank you, Bill. I'm enjoying watching the Olympics, and there are many happy memories, some unhappy memories of 96, but a lot of happy memories about going to so many events then. I'm a fan, and I'm enjoying them this week.
1: Yeah, I haven't watched—you know, my wife and I were saying we haven't watched any of it because we've just sort of—it sort of is existing in this space where there are no spectators there. Has that— made it a little more, uh, a little less fun for you,
2: Mary-Margaret? The um, NBC and the other broadcasters, I think, are doing interesting things about simultaneously filming the family. And last night, a 17-year-old from Seward, Alaska, where they have one swimming pool, one swimming pool, won a gold medal. So they had a film, a simultaneous film, of the entire 2,000 people of Seward going absolutely crazy when she won. It was very... It was a fun way to kind of experience it for her, with her family and with Seward there with her by film. So it's a combination of different kind of approaches, but the athletes um, are there and the athletes are amazing to me.
1: Well, um, thank you for that, Phil uh, in On that, um, Edward Lindsay is back with us today, former Atlanta state representative, a Republican, now the head of the government. Relations, to the Georgia Government Affairs Team at Dentons Edward, the world's largest law firm. How are you? <laughs>
3: um, very well, and uh, thank you for having me. And, and like to market. I'm actually a big fan of the Olympics, and why? Watch, usually watching. Uh, we're having,
1: we're still having a little. We, Edward, you're unfortunately your audio is continuing to break up a little bit. We were having a problem with it before the show, but Sam Bermas does will work on getting it uh, back. Kurt Young is back with us, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Kurt, uh, as we were getting set to go on the air, you said you were trying to squeeze out a little bit of enjoyment these last couple of weeks before school starts
4: again. And I will tell you, Bill, it, it, it. it the, the shorter, the closer the semester gets, the shorter the time feels that you have to really enjoy, right? Even though uh, it says two weeks, it feels more like two days uh, to work with. But, you know, Bill, I wanted to share something with you, a little known fact that I I don't think you and I talked about. You know, I was on the Mayor's Blue Ribbon Commission to investigate that bombing, um, um, the Olympic bombing. Um, Yeah, I was a member of that commission. Um, I I, uh, took part in... All of the research components, everything from the uh, ride-alongs to the, uh, the interviewing of the uh, nine the operators of the 911 911 um, um, call center uh, to looking at the, the GIS uh, aspects, uh, the timeline. My, one of my main tasks was to organize that timeline uh, from the time that the call went in to the time that the actual uh, bomb detonated. Uh, So, yes, I've been reflecting on it uh, these last few days as well.
1: That must have been a fascinating um, experience to be a part of that commission. I'm glad you shared that with us. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, let's move on. Um, I want to start the show tomorrow by talking about a story that's on the front page of your newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this morning. The headline is Fulton Elections Takeover Mold. Uh, Mark Nisi and Ben Brash were the uh, reporters on the story. And here's just a little of what they wrote. Uh, With a rising drumbeat of criticism, several Republican Georgia legislators are building a case for the state government to take over Fulton County elections. The newfound power to fire local elections management created by Georgia's voting law worries voting rights. Advocates who say it could be abused for partisan purposes to tamper with the heavily Democratic Howdy. Now, to some extent, this um, th- the notion of a takeover is still off somewhere in the distance. Possibly, the ground seems to be uh, being laid for that possibility, but we don't know unequivocally that that's where we're headed quite yet. Tomorrow.
0: Yeah, exactly. So under the new law that was passed earlier this year, the state election board can replace a county election board after a performance review, an audit, or an investigation. And that gives a temporary superintendent authority over things like vote counting, polling places, and staffing. And you're right, Bill. It is hard to know exactly what's going on. Fulton County has long been a punching bag for pretty much everyone, not just Republicans. I feel like inevitably on election night every year, everyone on Twitter is talking about how Fulton is once again delayed and slow and messy. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's hard to ignore the kind of escalating comments from a lot of Republicans who have indicated that, yeah, they might want to see some sort of investigation. And, um, you know, you certainly hear from Democrats from Fulton who are extremely worried about that possibility.
1: Um, Mary Margaret, uh, the Senate, Senate pro tem, Butch Miller, is, of course, running for lieutenant governor, but he is considering calling for a performance review of how Fulton County dealt with ballots in the 2020 election. State Senator Burt Jones, another possible candidate for lieutenant governor, wants to hold legislative hearings. And Mary Margaret, we know that David Ralston, the speaker, has proposed a GBI investigation of the Fulton County practices. And as I throw it to you, I think it's important to um, underline what Tamar just said. Um, the, the, The concerns about a partisan takeover are relevant for Democrats, but it is true that Fulton County's election processes have been chaotic for years.
2: The messaging that's going on from the Republican leadership to stake out political ground is going to go on for a good while. This time last year in 2020, the House was conducting one of the many investigations that uh, have been called for in a variety of ways about the 2020 June primary and the November and the January 2021. The messaging um, that is using the House uh, 202 bill um, is politics. It's very, very little substance there, as we've seen by a dozen lawsuits and a dozen other press conferences and ongoing quote unquote investigations. The speaker sent out a letter last week that called for something at Fulton County. The Senate responds this week with actions about Fulton County. It's a reliable punching bag that is ongoing and um, is going to continue, I think, throughout the election cycle.
4: Yeah, I I agree with that. It it, it, it connects with uh, a trend in Fulton County, right? As you mentioned yourself, Bill, uh, Fulton County has uh, had uh, problems. But there's, uh, there are different stars aligning now, or I guess we could say realigning. Remember, remember, this is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in the context of Georgia politics. It's happening in the context of Atlanta politics. And it's happening in within the framework of uh, uh, Atlanta being a base, once again, for uh, civil rights-related struggles, civil rights-related, uh, uh, social justice-related uh, um, ground. Um, a uh, ground level uh, organizing and, and, and demonstration. And it's happening against the backdrop of the extent to which the state of Georgia in general and Fulton County in particular de- uh, uh, delivered in the most recent election. So part of what I'm watching here is the extent to which uh, a question is answered. Where is this actually heading? And I think that although it's being framed uh, 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 with within the uh, um, uh, discourse around uh, voting irregularities or election irregularities, it can easily become a matter Mm -hmm. of national politics as it relates to mobilizing of the black vote, mobilizing of other uh, um, uh, communities of color um, who themselves may feel threatened by what appears to be uh, 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 unsupported claims with regard to the uh, access to the ballot and the uh, um, use of the vote as a means of empowerment. Um, I I think this is going to be headed into uh, some major um, social and political mobilization on the ground. To to pick up on what some other folks have said before, um,
3: in a bipartisan fashion, uh, folks in Fulton County have been and statewide have been frustrated with Fulton County Election Board for a long time. I mean, it's often been referred to as a lost island of misfit toys in terms of its administration. Uh, the, the the problem here is that it's getting politicized uh, as as a result of the unproven claims People aren't willing to take seriously the very serious problems with the administration of of the election systems within Fulton County and some other counties as well. And hopefully that's where the focus will will go to as we go down the road. I will say this. Uh, the threat of a takeover is oftentimes a very important thing to have. Mayor Morgan and I served in the General Assembly when the General Assembly gave the governor the power to uh, to relieve school boards uh, of their positions if they uh, proved uh, dysfunctional, and this was particularly important after the APS scandal in 2010. The threat of that uh, led to the APS board Frankly, shaping up <laughs> and coming back into uh, in, into compliance in many ways. So, you know, I think the threat here may be uh, as important as actually ever pulling the trigger.
2: When are the uh, when are the voters going to become tired of the messaging from either side? Um, and that's that's what I think about. If it's a daily argument from Republicans, and, and I'm, I'm sure Ed will say it's true in some ways from Democrats too that our message for 2022 elections elections is about election fraud or election stealing or election integrity. When are the voters going to get tired of that?
0: Uh,
2: I know I'm already tired of it, and I'm in the middle of it and care a lot about it. Uh, The 202 attacks through the lawsuits are going to continue. The political uh, posturing is going to continue and it's going to result in my guesswork, educated guesswork, in no action. Because the action to actually take over Fulton County, given no evidence, given no evidence, which is what we understand to be true, is going to create such a backlash that I don't think that's a risk that the Republicans will take. The messaging of uh, the Democrats is about they're coming after us, they're coming after us to generate turnout. The message of the Republicans are, we're coming after you, we're coming after you, to generate turnout. When is that going to become really tiresome to the voter and the the leaders running for office or the leaders substantively? When are they going to figure out that they really got to talk about something that people care about? And that is crime or mental health or education lagging or other things that are really more meaningful to people than political posturing.
4: Yeah, that's an important, that's an important point. Um, but I suspect that one of the responses to that frustration will be, as I kind of said a moment ago, uh, would be a, a, a certain level of mass mobilization. In other words, the history of voter disenfranchisement is so recent. You know, we talk about the 1960s and 50s as if it was ancient history. It's really not that long ago. And when you have a younger generation now who, are, who is becoming much more politically acclimated, they're becoming more politically cautious, more politically engaged, of course, never at the level that we as uh, elders would want them to, right, uh, in the spirit of, of, of um, 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 uh, um, young people voting. But the issue is something that they can easily respond to, right, this notion that the vote is being threatened, the franchise is being threatened. And it could be that issue that mobilizes a whole generation, especially, especially, Bill, as this becomes more of a national story, right? We're talking about the state of Georgia. It could easily become a national story as what we've seen happening here in Georgia can be duplicated in other places uh, where the similar laws are unfolding.
1: Edward, jump in.
3: Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, just sort of build on on what Margaret said as well as Kirk is that one of the most important things in a democracy is for the losers <laughs> to respect the outcome, uh, to be able to say, you know, we'll come back in two years, but you are my governor or you are my president or you are my representative or whatever else. That is a that is a central cornerstone of a democratic system is to have the loser accept the, accept the outcome and then move on. We've had a disturbing trend in this country. Uh, over the last few years of the losers not respecting the outcome and questioning the outcome. The fact of the matter is we have a a relatively secure election system in this country, a lot better than we had in the past. We have more people participating in our democracy than ever before. That's a good thing. And that we need to, uh, both sides need to be focusing on things that, uh, that that will allow their base to respect the outcome and to focus Uh, on that and also allow the other side to respect the outcome should they prevail.
1: I I apologize for interrupting, Edward. Uh, Tamar, before we leave this subject, I do think it's important to point out that Mary Margaret is dubious about whether uh, the the Republican-controlled legislature would ever move ahead with replacing uh, an election of a board. Uh, But but the new voting law, Senate Bill 202, does in fact— Uh, create a situation in which the state election board could replace a county election board after a performance review, which is being called for by some Republicans, an audit or an investigation, which David Ralston is calling for uh, from the GBI of Fulton County's uh, election practices, and they could install a temporary superintendent who would have full authority, full authority, over vote counting and polling places and staffing. So Mary Margaret may be right that voters eventually are going to get tired of this messaging, but that doesn't mean Republicans couldn't actually use the language of this bill, this law, to to in fact start replacing some election officials in counties like Fulton that tend to vote Democratic.
0: Yeah, and you're starting to see some rhetoric from voting rights activists and some Democrats who are concerned that, you know, this temporary superintendent, the person put in place, may never want to certify whatever election results come in, no matter what um, happens. Um, I think at this point, some of that is just fear. We don't really quite know yet. Um I think kind of the the big problem right now is that so many conspiracy theories have kind of taken hold about what exactly happened in Fulton. but there are some legit problems that we also saw in 2020 in the in the county. And I wonder how much of that is getting is going to get lost in all of this. We saw lines stretching for hours in Midtown um, in the primary last June. Some people were waiting three, four, five, six hours to vote. Some voters never got their absentee ballots that they requested. That's getting drowned out by conspiracy theories, you know, about videos of election workers pulling ballot containers from under a table. And I, I think the problem is that people are becoming so galvanized one way or another that I don't think um, you know. I think some of these smaller things that are still huge, um, you know, polling places getting consolidated, absentee ballots not arriving—that's going to get lost.
1: Well, Ed, Edward way, and people, then Mary Margaret, I, let me let me ask yeah. a question. I'm sorry, Edward, but I want to ask you and Mary yeah. Margaret to each offer your opinions on this. Why can't Fulton County's election board get its act together? They have been <laughs> struggling with one crisis after another for decades. Tomorrow, just pointed at some of it out, you know, lines that extend for blocks, people waiting hours to vote. There's no excuse for a county like Fulton, Edward, and then Mary Margaret to, to, to not be able to straighten all this out.
3: That is a source of frustration for, for years. And, and having been uh, one of those individuals who was stuck in a line uh, when suddenly the, uh, the, the uh, machines broke down, uh, for a long period of time with no real explanation. was So I was one of those people that had been frustrated by that. And it's an open question uh, as to why. But hopefully maybe the threat will, will start to get folks to wake up. Uh, and I would also want to add one last point to my Republican friends uh, of caution here is what I call the, 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 the pottery barn rule, which is uh, you break it, you own it, And same thing is it's one thing to threaten, it's one thing to cajole, it's one thing to send in the GBI and other experts to try to get them to to improve how they're doing things. It's another thing to take over because once you take over, you own the mistakes. And so that's going to be a question that I think the Republicans have to ask themselves in terms of whether or not to actually pull the trigger.
2: Across the state, we know that precincts don't open on time. We know that machines are broken and We know that at their lines. When you have uh, 900,000 people in Fulton County with a more changeable population, um, the Fulton County Election Board has not did not do before June 2020 what they needed to do about reassigning precincts. The six or eight-hour wait at, at the Park Tavern precinct in Midtown was a disaster and was a management error. It, the, they have their faults. Um, As across the state, thousands of precincts run by essentially volunteers in a locally managed operation. Fulton County has its problems trying to provide election for 900,000 people in a changing, very strongly changing population. That's not an excuse that it's hard what they do. Not excuse at all. But there is no fraud. There is no illegality. The voting counting was accurate, Um, and they're going to have to struggle and have to do better on precincts to alignment to prevent uh, hours and hours of waiting.
1: Um, I've got to get to a break, but Mary Margaret, does the law, um, that's the new law, require that there be some evidence of fraud before? They could the, the legislation, can it doesn't require that, does
2: it? No, and this, this posturing that's going on about from the both the House and the Senate leadership that we're gonna do X or Y is is laying out a paper trail that for them to continue to waive the threat. We're in charge, you're not competent, we're in charge, you're not competent, and people need to be afraid of you. That's the message that they're gonna to continue to send. And it's very unfortunate in my
1: Okay, I've got to get to the first break of the show. When we come back, I want to talk about one more uh, uh, election uh, story in the news. And uh, then we got to talk about the COVID pandemic that seems to be stepping up here in Georgia. How are uh, state officials and local officials dealing with it? That and a lot more after these messages. Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay, Kurt Young, Tamar Hallerman with me today. Uh, Tamar, in what has become a not infrequent occurrence, uh, yesterday, uh, Politico, the national political uh, web uh, uh, newspaper, uh, featured uh, Georgia on its homepage uh, with a headline that we can't repeat on the radio. <laughs> but, but it essentially suggested that Democrats are terrified of what could happen in the 2022 election cycle with the election laws being passed in a number of Republican controlled states, including Georgia. And here's the lead. After Georgia Republicans passed a restrictive voting law in March, Democrats here began doing the math. The state's new ID requirement for mail in ballots could affect more than 270,000 Georgians lacking identification. The provision cutting the number of ballot drop boxes could affect hundreds of thousands of voters who cast absentee ballots that way in 2020, and that's just in the populous Atlanta suburbs alone. And Democrats here are trying to figure out how to counter that uh, tomorrow.
0: Yeah, the story kind of shows how much hand-wringing there is among Democrats, not only in Georgia but nationally, about the impact of laws like SB202. And I think the, um, you know, the takeaway from this article is no one has a really good answer. I mean, the best case scenario is they can get turnout like what they did in the the presidential election last fall. That's going to be really hard without a a presidential race at the top of the ballot to generate excitement. Um, And I think there's a fear among Democrats of, you know, I think one of them in the story described it as death by a thousand cuts. All the different provisions in a lot of these laws like SB 202 and how, you know, even if one provision maybe prevents a couple hundred or a couple thousand people from voting. When you're talking about margins as close as, as 12,000, like Joe Biden's victory in Georgia this fall, um, Democrats are worried that could be more than enough uh, to keep them in the minority.
1: So Kurt, that leads to what's been an interesting debate going on among Democrats right now. Um, there are some Democrats who have become very critical of the fact that President Biden is talking the talk uh, about his dismay over state election laws that some believe are uh, going to suppress the vote of of Democratic voters, um, but that he's not taking enough action. He's not using the bully pulpit. And the response to that has been it, like with organizations like Fair Fight, what we've got to do is mobilize to get people to get their voter IDs. We've got to do everything in our power to uh, point out how how people have to get out there and respond to this election law. But there's a debate back and forth about that, Kurt. Well,
4: that, that's right. And I, I suspect that you will have both unfolding. Right On the one hand, you will see there is no choice uh, in Democratic Politics right now around mobilizing as a response to what's taking place on the ground throughout the nation. There is no other choice, and so you and you're beginning to see that now. You're beginning to see. Um, I, I'm very proud to see so many uh, women take the lead in beginning this direct action type of uh, 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 organizing. That that is major, and I think we're going to see more of that. But that's at the national level. That most recent story was at the national level. You're going to begin to see this mobilization unfold at the local levels as a part of uh, a messaging. I think Tamar was mentioning a moment ago, uh, the, the messaging that's going to be associated with the uh, current party. However, however, there's also going to be tremendous pressure, I think uh, placed on the administration and some of the more centrist Democrats who are taking a position to mm, uh, seek out uh higher levels of bipartisanship, which, you, you know, it, it makes sense. Uh, uh, in the normal scheme of things, but something is different now. That's requiring a different level of pressure to be placed on the administration in general, and for example, on senators such as uh, um, 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 uh, Mansion uh, in 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 West Virginia, uh, those who are looking for ways to to find some middle ground. And I believe you're gonna find. I, I keep making this point about the easy messaging. Uh, one of the targets of this pressure point, I think, uh, will be uh, a, a new focus on reforming, adjusting, maybe not outright eliminating the filibuster. Uh, that's going to become a, uh, an instrument in the uh, discussions around how to mobilize, I think, uh, Democratic voters to respond to this issue.
2: I am um, dismissive, perhaps it's too strong a word, of the impact of messaging, but I am very concerned about the substance of 202 as it creates small, but existing, but reality-based barriers. We know that there were 20,000 provisional voters uh, who exercised their right to vote provisionally um, last year. And in Fulton County, I think there were 3,000. The elimination under 202 of provisional ballots was very significant to me. And the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court made some ruling about provisional ballots to uphold um, a dumb move that that Arizona made is uh, troubling to me. Provisional ballots and drop boxes and IDs are substantive barriers for X number of people, primarily young people. The question I ask folks who want to help that are concerned about the reality is how many eighteen to twenty-four year olds do you know who do not have a driver's license? They may may have an Emory picture ID, which is no good. They may have a Morehouse picture ID that's no good, but do they have a driver's license or a state-issued picture ID? Um, as a practical suggestion that I make everywhere I go, find the 18- to 25-year-olds in your immediate vicinity and make sure they have a picture ID. There are barriers that 202 creates, and getting the vote out is what won under the Stacy Abrams model in 2020, and it has to be replicated and has to be upgraded even more.
3: Edward? Well, regardless of what you think of uh, of 202, the fact of the matter is that we have two political parties in the state who are very good at turning out their, their voters. And uh, with you know 18 months from the time in which 202 was passed until the November election, I have every anticipation, quite frankly, that that both parties will do a very good job getting their base out and getting the folks that they know are, are going to be supporting them out to vote. And and that's going to be the key. Uh, the courts will handle whether or not there's any kind of undue uh, burdens uh, that are being placed on voters as a result of 202. The Voting Rights Act still exists in terms of those kind of uh, cases, and that's that's going to be considered over the next few months by the courts. But in the meantime, uh, Stacey Abrams' organizations uh, know how to work the system. Uh, and I mean that in, in a very positive form. Uh, Republicans know how to work the system. Uh, and and I have every anticipation that uh, both sides will be able to get their voters out. Uh, there may be new hurdles and changing of the rules that take place. But the question is, are they going to be unable to get the people out? Now, and quite frankly, I expect both sides to be able to do so.
1: Um, Tamar, to put a finishing point on this part of our discussion, uh, the Politico piece points out that the state Democratic Party is confronting the new law by building on their voter education programs, <laughs> which, which um, as Ed, Ed, Edward Lindsay really pointed out, really were established uh, after the 2018 midterms. Stacey Abrams and her organization, a big part of that, they're training county chairs, volunteers, and voters on the law's terms. The goal is to train volunteers on how to obtain a voter ID in all of Georgia's 159 counties. They've also brought on three new deputy political directors for Black, Latino, and Asian American outright outreach. So they're, they're ramping up. And, you know, Alan Abramowitz on this show has said any number of times he thinks there's going to be great backlash to SB202. He thinks it's going to motivate Democrats to turn out in big numbers.
0: Yeah, and we don't know what the news cycles are going to be in November 2022. So, you know, sure, right now there's so much anger uh, among Democrats about SB202. And, yeah, it's going to take some work to kind of make sure that their voters are still going to be riled up leading into November. And um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see.
1: All right, let's do Why don't we do this? Um we want to turn the page and talk a bit about COVID uh, in the next segment of this show. So why don't we get the final break of the show out of the way a little early and come back and we'll look at what's going on with uh, the Delta variant in Georgia and how it's being responded to. You're listening to Political Rewind. <laughs> We know that the uh, coronavirus is once again active. I've been hesitant to use words like surge, spiking, um, because I want to be careful about the language I use around it. But it is certainly true that we are seeing an escalating number of positive COVID-19 cases in the state of Georgia, up something like 30% in just the last 30 days. Um, Just this week savannah mayor van johnson reimposed a mask mandate remember that he became the first mayor last year to impose a mask mandate um, even before governor kemp came along and forbade under his emergency power cities from declaring mask mandates van johnson said we've got to do it he kept that mandate in force until i think may of this year and now he's reinstated it let's listen to just a little bit of what he had to say about the virus in savannah During the past month, increased interactions among members of the public have resulted in an increased number of new daily COVID-19 cases here in Savannah, Chatham County. Daily cases are on a steep and alarming rise. Based on the federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention indicators and thresholds, community transmission of COVID-19 within Savannah, Chatham County
4: is now considered high and highly likely to increase during the coming days and weeks.
1: Tamar, just uh, to uh, put some data around his statement, um, there are now 230 cases of community transmission uh, in Savannah. That's based on uh, uh, using a a baseline of 100,000 residents, 230. But on July 9th, that community uh, transmission index was at 76. Things are getting out of control, and um, I, we're we're still looking to see how the state is going to respond tomorrow.
0: Yeah, and so far, what we've seen from the governor is that. Uh, he doesn't want to change any um, of the guidance from the state. He never imposed a statewide mandate uh, for masks. And after initially fighting with Mayor Johnson uh, last year over Savannah's uh, mask mandate, he end, and uh, of course Keisha Lance Bottoms here in Atlanta, he ended up backing off of that fight and kind of letting cities do their thing. Um, he's indicated he he doesn't see a need for for change at the moment, but the numbers certainly are startling. I mean, the seven-day rolling average uh, yesterday was at its highest point since March, uh, before most of us had gotten vaccinated. So that certainly is troubling, um, especially when you hear about cases of, of breakthrough infections from people who have been vaccinated. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this debate unfolds. I mean, certainly in Washington, you see stories about how the Biden administration is wrestling uh, with what to do, especially when it comes to reimposing mask mandates. Of course, the issue has just become so politicized. Um, and I think the fear is that they may overstep and make it even harder to, to get extra people vaccinated. Um, so we'll see if other, especially here in Georgia, if other cities follow suit and uh, do what Savannah is is doing as well.
1: Edward, um, the last time I looked at the Georgia DPH, Department of Public Health uh, data on COVID, it was July 22nd. So it's, it's been a, a few days now. But on that date, there were 1,440 new cases of COVID reported um, compared to on June 27th, not even a month earlier, 192 new cases. And Edward, as I, I give the ball to you on this, Governor Kemp did, in fact, put out a video last week, which we played a portion of on our show, and, and he did point out that he, he's been vaccinated, he believes vaccines are making him safer, but he continues to be a little cautious about how he frames whether people should all be vaccinated. He says, that's your choice. You have to decide. And, and the question is, is that a strong enough message right now?
3: Edward? An open question. I plan, I, while I have a lot of respect for the governor, uh, I, I'm kind of leaning more toward Governor Kay Ivey I, uh, from Alabama's position, which is it's getting close to the time when we start uh, specifically blaming those who have chosen not to be vaccinated for the spike, which uh, scientifically is correct. And I think that we need to start being uh, tougher on our friends and neighbors and loved ones who've chosen not to be vaccinated, to go, hey, it's not simply a matter of my body, my choice. You are uh, threatening the health of our state. You're threatening the economic viability of our state. You're threatening uh, the rest of our ability to to start uh, living a more normal life. And I think that that's a message that uh, I think folks need to be conveying uh, at the top politically and all the way down, to the kitchen table. Uh, Okay, enough's enough. Uh, If you're not being vaccinated, you're part of the problem, period. End of subject, end of story. Get vaccinated so we can start living a more normal life and we can protect people's lives.
2: Yes, the governor should tell people they should be vaccinated. The pandemic hospitalizations and deaths are among the unvaccinated. And it's very frightening to see the decisions people are making that are so destructive to families and to individuals. It's really tragic. So I think a stronger voice, which I'm hearing from a number of the uh, national Republicans, yes, you should get vaccinated. Do not waste your young life. Uh, The other group of people that as we go towards school starting is um, children under 12. Why did that five-year-old Calhoun die? I mean, I know there's only a dozen or so children that have died of COVID. But the parents I talked to about their children going back to school would really prefer all their children uh, to be vaccinated. And I think we're six months away from that or we're some number of months away from that. So this, this the reality of the pandemic is ongoing. People are dying. People who are unvaccinated are the ones that are filling our hospitals and the people that are dying. And the question still exists um, about children and the safety of children. The other uh, reality that I'm reading about affects probably all of us uh, as we're talking amongst ourselves this morning, and that is what's the incident of breakthrough virus for those of us that have been vaccinated? If all of us are vaccinated, which may be true uh, on this panel, Um, what's the likelihood of a breakthrough virus for me or for uh, you, Bill, because we're kind of probably the older folks in this crowd. We do know that if the breakthrough virus comes to me, uh, I'm not going to have to go to the hospital, and it's it's not going to be life-threatening because I have been vaccinated. But what is the extent that I should be worried about breakthrough virus for myself, given my age and conditions? So there's realities of the pandemic that are simply not over yet. And I would like to see a stronger leadership from all of our Republican leaders. Yes, you should get vaccinated. Do not throw your life away. Get the vaccine.
1: Um, Kurt, there's obviously been a lot of attention focused on the partisan divide on vaccines that that typically in, in many states, it is the red counties of the state's Republicans who are supporters of Trump have decided not to get vaccinated. But it is also true, Kurt, that there has been a continuing effort to try to get the African-American community uh, vaxxed up, so to speak, that there is still hesitation. And uh, despite the efforts of, say, the Morehouse School of Medicine, Valerie Montgomery Rice, the president of of that institution, to do mobilizations out in the community, it continues to be a struggle, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, you know the, the ghost of Tuskegee um, um, still haunts us right and by that I mean this the infamous Tuskegee experiment where um, 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 significant numbers of African-american men were unknowingly uh, um, um, given uh, some of the most virulent uh, forms of a, uh, of a, um, disease I don't remember exactly which one but it, it, um, it without their knowing and 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 through the uh inter the relationship with the health official um, and so there's been this long standing suspicion in the black community uh, with regard to uh, um, of these kind of medical types of uh, of efforts however, I think though despite that um, there is an increasing sensibility to what we're dealing with now because this is different right this is a global pandemic and it's uh, ravaging the entire planet planet, although we can find some positive uh, um, uh, results among African Americans who will have been vaccinated. There's a suspicion. Um, but then there's also segments of the black community bill that are, uh, and I think, this, I don't think this is unique to the black community, but there are segments of the population that are not getting access to the information that we all digest on a daily basis. Right. Uh, and then you add to that, the, uh, uh, impact of, 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 uh, 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 situations around poverty and 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 what have you, it becomes a, a really serious challenge, and this is why it's directly connected to the uh, politics at the local level, right? Because it needs to be a very carefully structured uh, um, messaging that goes to the black community that may be different from other communities um, within the society.
3: Well, you know, to 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 go back to my original point, like the, the the frustration here is that. Unlike some other countries that are struggling to uh, have enough vaccines to vaccinate all their people, we have enough vaccines to vaccinate all of our people. Uh, one of the things that Donald Trump did right, uh, I know there's a lot of reasons for criticism, but one thing he did right was he, he, you know, he pushed the vaccination program so that we would, this country would have enough vaccines. By contrast, the tragedy that you see, for instance, in in many parts of Africa are countries that are starving for the vaccines in order to save their people's lives. But here in the United States, uh, we have the ability to save everyone if everyone will simply do the right thing.
1: Um, tomorrow, this becomes a particularly urgent matter because schools are going to start again in some cases next week. DeKalb County here in Metro Atlanta goes back, I think, on August 2nd. Um, the Atlanta public schools have already said they're going to require masks when they start classes a little bit later. Um, and there are, there are places like Cobb County where there are fights going on between school administrators and parents over masking. A lot of parents saying, don't make our kids wear masks. But this... This is a, this is more urgent because of the school openings that are about to happen.
0: Yeah, of course. And I'm not sure exactly where the big pharmaceutical companies are in terms of testing vaccines. I know they are under pressure to start um, looking at the effects of kids 5 to 12 right now. I, I believe it's 12 and over who can get um, vaccinated. But until then, and I think as Mary Margaret said, you know that could take months before that stuff is approved. So yeah, of course, this has become political like everything else. I do think it'll be interesting to see the impact. We, we have a bunch of private universities in Georgia that are mandating that their mm-hmm. students get vaccinated, including many of the HBCUs, as well as Emory, whereas the university system of Georgia is not. And I'm going to be very curious to see what the data looks like after that, or if there are um, dips in attendance in a lot of these schools from people who can't or don't want to get the vaccine. And as Kurt said, we're only a couple weeks away, so there's not the most time left.
1: Yeah, the problem is that a lot of the schools uh, that, that universities that are requiring uh, uh, vaccines are not getting compliance from students, according to data we're looking at. Uh, and, and so that's a problem as well. Mary Margaret, before we completely run out of time, um, you're concerned about a different aspect of school openings next week. It's related to the coronavirus in some ways, but you are concerned about how federal relief money is going to be used in the most positive ways in terms of, as you pointed out in a note you wrote to me, say in a DeKalb County school system. Tell us what you're concerned about.
2: I've been pestering the budget leaders and the uh, budget staff folks about the 39,000 children that did not enroll for school in September 2020. How many of those, we typically have a five to 20,000 child increase in our 1.7 million children in K through 12. We Last year, because of the pandemic, 39,000 children were down. Where did they go? Every school system is required to submit a plan to get its CARES money and rescue money to how it's going to spend it. And I am very concerned about the quality, quantitative data that will be accumulated about small and large, and I have three school districts in my district, a small indicator, and a large 100,000 with DECAD, with are they going to efficiently evaluate children who come to school, what educational loss or gain did they have since the last testing, and how are they going to provide remediation? The summer programs have been played out very differently. APS had a robust, extensive summer school program, and it um, accommodated about, I'm told, about 40% of the APS school population. The Cab County did not have a robust summer program with its federal money. It was kind of a normal 10 15%. Cab County's view about helping children pick up the gaps that they may have suffered last year comes from uh, a longer
1: period of time. Very complex. Um, I'm glad you raised an issue. Sam, Amelia, and I are working on putting together a special edition for next week about issues surrounding school openings in the state. And that'll be a great thing uh, to add to our uh, agenda. Uh, real quick, Kurt, we don't have time to talk about it, but your university, Clark Atlanta University, has announced it is forgiving the debt. It is clearing the balance sheets of all the students who were, part, were in virtual classes all last year and through this year because they wanted to thank them and reward them for staying dedicated. Um, I think Spelman College has joined that effort. So, Kurt, we wanted to give a shout-out to your university uh, for uh, that decision. All right, we're completely out of time. Kurt Young Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, Tamar Hallerman, thank you for a, as always with you uh, four on the panel, a really fascinating conversation. Um, We're going to be back, of course, with another show tomorrow. Uh, Until then, take care, stay safe and healthy. Unfortunately, start thinking about wearing a mask more often again. And if for some reason you're not vaccinated, it really is time to take it seriously. Please help all of us, yourselves, your families, go out and get a vaccine. It's an easy thing to do. See you all tomorrow.